0: Section 36 of Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by C.J. Byrne. Cambridge Medieval History, Volume 1, Chapter 10A by Ludwig Schmidt. Alaric ascended to the throne on 28 December 484. The king was of an indolent, weak nature, altogether the opposite of his father, and without energy or warlike capacity, as immediately became evident. For example, he submitted to give up Siagrius, whom he had received into his kingdom after the battle of Soissons, 486, when the victorious king of the Franks threatened him with war. The inevitable settlement by arms of the rivalry between the two principal powers in Gaul was of course only put off a little longer by this compliance. About 494, the war began. It lasted for many years and was carried on with varying success on both sides. Hostilities were ended through the mediation of the Ostrogoth king Theodoric, who in the meanwhile had become Alaric's father-in-law by the conclusion of a treaty of peace on the terms of uti possidetis, circa 502. But this condition could not last long, for the antagonism was considerably aggravated by the conversion of Clovis to the Catholic Church in the year 496, 25th of December. Consequently, the greatest part of Alaric's Roman subjects, with the clergy of course at their head, adhered to the Franks, and jealously endeavored to bring about the subjection of the Visigoth kingdom to their rule. Alaric was obliged to adopt severe measures in some instances against such treasonable desires, but usually he tried by gentleness and the granting of favors to win over the Romans to his support, an attempt which in view of the prevalent and insurmountable antagonism, was of course quite ineffectual and even defeated its own ends, being regarded only as weakness. Thus he permitted the bishoprics kept vacant under Uruk to be again filled. He moreover permitted the Gallic bishops to hold a council at Agde in September 506, and, indication of the ambiguous attitude of the clergy, it was opened with a prayer for the prosperity of the Visigoth kingdom. The publication of the so-called Lex Romana Visigothorum, also named Breviarum Alaricianum, represented the most important act of conciliation. This code of law, which had been composed by a commission of lawyers together with prominent laymen and even clergy, and was drawn from extracts and explanations of Roman law was sanctioned by the king at Toulouse 2 February 506 after having received the approval of an assembly of bishops and distinguished provincials and was ordered to be used by the Roman population in the Gothic kingdom. Why the explosion was delayed until the year 507 is unknown. That the king of the Franks was the aggressor is certain. He easily found a pretext for beginning the war as champion and protector of Catholic Christianity against the absolutely just measures which Alaric took against his treacherous Orthodox clergy. Clovis had sufficiently appreciated the by no means despicable power of the Visigoth kingdom and had summoned a very considerable army, one contingent of which was furnished by the Ripuarian Franks. His allies, the Burgundians, approached from the east in order to take the Goths in the flank. Among his allies, Clovis probably also counted on the Byzantines, who placed their fleet at his disposal. On his part, Alaric had not looked upon coming events idly, but his preparations were hampered by the bad state of the finances of his kingdom. In order to obtain the necessary funds, he was obliged to coin gold pieces of inferior value, which were soon discredited everywhere. Apparently, the fighting strength of the Gothic army was inferior to the army of Clovis, but if the Ostrogoth troops, who had held out prospects of coming, should arrive at the right time, Alaric could hope to oppose his foe successfully. The king of the Franks had to endeavor to bring about a decisive action before the arrival of these allies. In the spring of 507, he suddenly crossed the Loire and marched towards Poitiers, where he probably joined the Burgundians. On the campus vocladensis ten miles from Poitiers, the Visigoths had taken up their position. Alaric put off beginning battle because he was waiting for the Ostrogoth troops, but as they were hindered by the appearance of a Byzantine fleet in Italian waters, he determined to fight instead of beating a retreat, as it would have been wise to do. After a short engagement, the Goths turned and fled. In the pursuit, the king of the Goths was killed, it was said by Clovis' own hand, 507. With this overthrow, the rule of the Visigoths in Gaul was ended forever. The principal town of the Gothic kingdom was Toulouse, where the royal treasure was also kept. Euric, from time to time, also held court in Bordeaux, Alaric the second in Narbonne. The Gothic rule originally stretched, as has already been mentioned, as far as the province of Aquitania Secunda, and some bordering municipalities, among which was the district of Toulouse. But later on it extended not only over the whole territory of the Gallic provinces, but in addition to several parts of the provinces Vienensis, Narbonensis Secunda, Alps Maritime, and Lugdenensis Tertia. The Gothic possessions included also the greater part of the Iberian peninsula, i.e. the provinces of Baetica, Lusitania, Terraconensis, and Carthaginensis. The provinces named were in Roman times, in so far as it was a question of civil administrations, governed by consularis or praesides, and they were again divided into city districts, civitautes, or municipia. Under the sovereignty of the Goths, this constitution was maintained in its chief features. The inhabitants of the kingdom of Toulouse were composed of two races, the Goths and the Romans. The Goths were regarded by the Romans as foreigners so long as the federal connection remained in force. Yet both peoples lived side by side, each under its own law and jurisdiction. Intermarriage was forbidden. This rigid line of separation was adhered to, even when the Goths had shaken off the imperial suzerainty and the Gothic king had become the sovereign of the native population of Gaul. Theoretically, the Romans had equal privileges in the state. Thus, they were not treated as a conquered people without rights, as the Vandals and Langobards Lombards, dealt with the inhabitants of Africa and Italy. That the Goths were the real rulers was clearly enough made manifest to the Romans. The domestic condition of the Visigoths before the settlement in Gaul was undoubtedly on the same level as in their original home. Private property and land was unknown, Agriculture was comparatively primitive, and cattle rearing provided the principal means of subsistence. A national change began with the settlement in Aquitaine. This was done on the principle of the Roman quartering of troops, so that the Roman landowners were obliged to give up to the Goths, in free possession, a portion of their total property, together with coloni, slaves, and cattle appertaining to it. According to the oldest Gothic codes of law, The Goth received two-thirds of the tilled land, and, it seems, one-half of the woods. The wood and the meadow land, which was not partitioned, belonged to the Goths and the Romans for use in common. The parcels of land subjected to partition were called sortes, the Roman share, generally tertia, their occupants hospites or consortes. The Gothic sortes were exempt from taxation. As the invaders were very numerous compared with the extent of the province to be apportioned, there is no doubt that not only the large estates, but also the middle-sized and smaller properties were partitioned. Nevertheless, it is evident that not every Goth can have shared with a Roman possessor, because there certainly would not have been estates enough. We must rather assume that in the share given up, larger properties were split up among several families, as a rule among kinsmen. As the apportionment of the single lots undoubtedly took place through the decisive influence of the king, it is natural that the nobility, i.e. nobility by military service, was favored in the partition above the ordinary freemen. The landed property of the monarch's favorites must have gained considerably in extent as elsewhere through assignments from state property. The very considerable imperial possessions, both crown and private property, as a rule fell to the share of royalty. Land partition in the districts conquered later followed the same plan as in Aquitaine. Seizures of entire Roman estates certainly occurred, but they were exceptions and happened under special circumstances. As a rule, the Romans were protected by law in the possession of their tertier, even if it were only for fiscal reasons. The considerably extended range of the Gothic kingdom offered the people ample space for colonization, so it was not necessary to encroach on the whole of the Roman territory, as had been the case in Aquitaine. It is to be assumed that in the newly won territories, only the superfluous element of the population had to be provided for. We are not to suppose a general desertion of the homeland. The social economy proceeded, on the whole, on the same lines as before, i.e., through colony and slaves, from whose toil the owners derived their principal support, at least in so far as it was a question of food. For the Goths, whose favorite occupations were warfare and the chase, had no inclination to devote themselves to arduous agricultural toil. They only wanted to control directly the rearing of cattle, as they did of old. Animal food seems to have been provided principally by means of large herds of swine. The revolution which the partition of land brought about in the habits of the Goths was too powerful not to exert the deepest influence on all conditions of life. The rich revenues led to the display of a wanton and indolent way of living. The close contact with the Romans... Were for the most part morally decadent, was bound to affect injuriously a people so famous in earlier times for its austere manners. The old national bonds of union, besides having been relaxed through the migration, now from the scattering of the mass and colonization lost more and more of their original importance, since kinsmen need no longer be companions on the farmstead in order to obtain a living. The adoption of the Roman conditions of landholding obliged the Goths to accept numerous legal arrangements which were foreign to their national law and altered its principles considerably. Nevertheless, the national consciousness was strong enough to prevent it from merging itself quickly and completely in the Roman system. In contrast to the Ostrogoths, who did nothing but carefully conserve the Roman institutions which they found, The Visigoths are remarkable for an attitude in many respects independent towards the foreign organization. The entire power of government lay in the hands of the king, but the several rulers did not succeed in making their power absolute. Outwardly, the Visigoth king was only slightly distinguished from the other freemen. Like them, he wore the national skin garment and long curly hair. The raised seat as well as the sword appear as tokens of royal power, The insignia, such as the purple mantle and the crown, do not come till later. The old succession to the throne follows the system peculiar to the old German constitution of combined election and inheritance. After the death of Alaric I, his brother-in-law, Othewulf, was chosen king. Thus, a kindred connection played an important part in this choice. Othewulf's friendliness to Rome had placed him in opposition to the great mass of the people. Therefore, his successor was not his brother as he had wished, but first Sigaric and then Walia, who both belonged to other houses. The elevation of Theodoric I is also an instance of free election. The royal dignity remained in his house for over a century. Thorizamud was appointed king by the army. The succession of Theodoric II Second. Euric and Alaric II, on the other hand, was only confirmed by popular recognition. Just as the people regularly took part in the choice of the successor to the throne, so their influence was often brought to bear on the sovereign's conduct of government. After the settlement in Gaul, there could certainly no longer be any question of a national assembly in the old sense of the word, especially after the great expansion of territory under Euric. Meetings of all the freemen had become impossible on account of the expansion of the Gothic colonies. The circle of those who could obey the call to assemble became, therefore, smaller and smaller, while in carrying out the principal public functions, such as the coronation of the king, only those of the people who happened to be present at the place of election, or who lived in the immediate neighborhood, could as a rule take part. The importance which the commonalty, hereby lost, was gained by the nobility, an aristocracy founded on personal service to the king. It was only in the army that the greater part of the people found opportunity of expressing its will. It is certain that among the Visigoths, as among the Franks, regular military assemblies were held, which at first served the purpose of reviews and were under the command of the king. In these assemblies, important political questions were discussed, but the decision of the people was not always for the welfare of the state. The kingdom was subdivided very nearly on the lines of the previous Roman divisions into provinciae, and these again into Kiwitatis, Territoria. At the head of the province was the dux as magistrate for the Goths and Romans. He was also, as his title implies, in the first place the commander of the militia in the district, and he provided also the final authority and appeal in matters of government, corresponding to the Praefectus Praetorio, or vicarius of imperial times. The center of gravity of the government lay in the municipalities, whose rulers were comitis civitatum. They took exactly the place of the Roman provincial governors, so that the city districts also appear under the title of provinciae. Their authority extended even to the exercise of jurisdiction, with the exception of such cases as were reserved to the civic magistrates, and included control of the police and the collection of taxes. The dukes could at the same time be comes of a kiwitas in his district. At the head of the towns themselves were the curiales who, as hitherto, were bound by oath to fill their offices, and they were personally responsible for collecting the taxes. The most important official was the defensor, who was chosen from among the curiales by the citizens and only confirmed by the king. He exercised, in the first instance, jurisdiction in minor matters, but his activity extended over all the branches of municipal administration. Side by side with this Roman magistrature existed the national system which the Goths had brought with them. The Gothic people formed themselves into bodies of thousands, five hundreds, hundreds, and tens, which also remained as personal societies after the settlement. The millenarius, as of old, led the thousand in war and ruled over it jointly with the heads of the hundreds both in war and in peace. The Comes civitatus and his vicar originally only possessed jurisdiction over the Romans of his own circuit, but in Euric's time that had so far changed that he now possessed authority to judge the Goths as well in civil suits in conjunction with the millenarius. Thus, the later condition was prepared in which the millenarius appears only as military official. On the other hand, the defensor remained a judiciary solely for the Romans. We know but little about the officers of the central government. The first minister of Euric and of Alaric the second was Leo of Narbonne, a distinguished man of varied talents. His duty comprised a combination of the functions of questor, sacre palatii, and of the magister officiorum at the official court. He drew up the king's orders, conducted business with the ambassadors, and arranged the applications for an audience. A higher minister of the royal chancery was Anianus, who attested the authenticity of the official copies of the Lex Romana Visigothorum and distributed them. He seems to have answered to the Roman Primaciaris notoriorum, or referendarius. The organization of the Catholic Church was not disturbed by the Visigoth rule. Rather, it was strengthened. The ecclesiastical subdivision of the land, as it had developed in the last years of the Roman sway, corresponded on the whole with the political. The bishoprics, which coincided in an extent with the town districts, were grouped under metropolitan sees, which corresponded with the provinces of the secular administration. Since the middle of the 5th century, the authority of the Roman bishop over the church had been generally recognized. Next to the pope, the bishop of Arles exercised over the Gallic clergy, a theoretically almost unlimited disciplinary power. A bishop was chosen by the laity and the clergy of his see, and was ordained by the metropolitan bishop of the province, together with the other bishops. Although the boundaries of the Visigoth kingdom now in no way coincided with the old provincial and metropolitan boundaries, the hitherto existing metropolitan connection was nevertheless not set aside, nor were the relations of the bishops with the pope interfered with. The Gothic government as a rule showed great indulgence and consideration to the Catholic Church, which only changed to a more severe treatment when the clergy were guilty of treasonable practices, as happened under Euric. No organized and general persecution of the Catholics from religious fanaticism ever took place. The Catholic Church enjoyed particularly favorable conditions under Alaric II, who, in consideration of the threatening struggle with Clovis, acknowledged the formal legal position of the Roman Church according to the hitherto existing rules. Hardly anything is known of the ecclesiastical organization of the Arians in the kingdom of Toulouse. Probably in all the larger towns there were Arian bishops as well as Orthodox ones, and no doubt in earlier times they had been appointed by the king. Under the several bishops were the different classes of subordinate clergy. Presbyters and deacons are mentioned as in the Orthodox Church. The endowment of the Arian Church was probably as a rule allowed for out of the revenue, now and then, confiscated Catholic churches, as well as their endowments, were also made over to it. The church service was of course held in the vernacular, as it was in other German churches. The greater number of the clergy were therefore of Gothic nationality. The opposition between the two creeds was also certainly a very sharp one. Both sides carried on an active propaganda, which on the Aryan side, not unfrequently, seems to have been urged by force, but such ebullitions scarcely had the support and approval of the Gothic government. Very scanty indeed is our knowledge of the civilization of the kingdom of Toulouse. That the romance element was foremost in almost every department has already been observed. The Goths, however, held to their national dress until a later period. They wore the characteristic skin garment, which covered the upper part of the body, and laced boots of horsehide, which reached up to the calf of the leg. The knee was left bare. There is no doubt that the Gothic tongue was spoken by the people in intercourse with each other. Unhappily, no vestiges remain of it except in proper names. It is certain, however, that a great part of the nobility, especially the higher officials, understood Latin well. Most of the Arian clergy undoubtedly were also masters of both languages. Latin was the language of diplomatic intercourse and of legislation. Theodoric the Second was trained in Roman literature by Avitus. Euric, however, understood so little of the foreign language that he was obliged to use an interpreter for diplomatic correspondence. Yet this king was in no way opposed to the knowledge and significance of classical culture. The Visigothic court, therefore, formed a haven of frequent resort for the last representatives of Roman literature in Gaul. And the kings, from various motives, but especially from a fondness for Roman models, would employ the art of these men to celebrate their own deeds, here may be named in the first place the poet Sidonius Apollinaris, who for a long time lived, first in the court of Theodoric the Second, and then in that of Uric. Euric's minister, Leo, also is said to have distinguished himself as a poet, historian, and lawyer, but no more of his writings have been preserved than of the rhetorician Lampradius, who sang the fame of the Gothic royal house at the court of Bordeaux. But the decay of literature, and of culture in general, which had been for so long in progress in spite of the support of the still-existent schools of rhetoricians, could assuredly not be stayed by the patronage of the Gothic kings. End of section 36. End of chapter 10a.